If you would, go with me tonight to Exodus chapter number 34. Exodus 34. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Exodus together on Sunday nights. And so I just want to briefly reorient where we are in terms of the flow of the story. And I want to back up a little ways so that we can get a larger picture of what's been going on between God and his Israelite people. Back in chapter 19 and 20, the people arrived at Mount Sinai and God entered into a covenant with them. That covenant is foundationally described in the Ten Commandments, in these ten words that God inscribed in stone and gave to Moses on that mountain. And then we saw where the people of Israel said, we will obey. We agree to this covenant. And then there were several chapters where Moses presented essentially the book of the covenant, a collection of laws to govern Israelite life and society and their worship before God. And so it laid out many of the provisions of that covenant, what the people of Israel were required to obey when they said, we will keep this covenant. Moses is up on the mountain again, and he's receiving from the Lord further instruction. He's receiving plans and designs for the construction of the tabernacle, which will be the the central dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. There in that place, in that tabernacle, in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the mercy seat above that Ark of the Covenant was formed, that is where God's presence would be. And so Moses is up on top of the mountain receiving these instructions for the tabernacle. Meanwhile, down below, the people are already breaking the covenant that they had just agreed to. And in the most high-handed of ways, it's not just that the covenant says, don't lie, and someone told a lie. Right? The covenant said, number one, do not have any other gods before me. I mean, that's the first word, right? The second word, don't make any other images, no graven images, no likenesses of anything in the heavens above or in the earth beneath, nothing. First two words, and not just one person, but the whole community of Israel broke the first two words of the covenant and essentially broke the entire covenant which makes them the symbol of Moses throwing down those tablets of stone and shattering them, it makes that symbol very real. Because that's in essence what the people had done when they worshipped another god. And bowed down before that golden calf and said, this is the god that brought you out of Egypt, Israel. Bow down and worship it and let's have a festival and a celebration. God was angry with his people, wasn't he? God was angry. He was ready to destroy them. He threatened to destroy them and start over with Moses. But Moses took the role of intercessor, didn't he? Moses took the role of intercessor. He prayed before God. And in that, he pictured Christ for us, didn't he? He took that role of intercessor and he stood between God and the sinful people of Israel. And he said, Lord, please do not destroy them. For the sake of your glory, for the sake of the patriarchs, for the sake of your promises, for the sake of your name among the nations, don't destroy them. 
And God heard the prayer of Moses, and he did not destroy them. Now, there was punishment. There were some who died because God is a just God. He's a righteous God, and he will judge sin. So there were many who died, but he did not wipe them out and start over with Moses. He heard his prayer, his intercession. Then God says, I won't destroy them, but I'm not going with you. Right? I'm not going with you. Because if I were to go with you, you might do something along the way because you're stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and I might destroy you along the way. Moses again intercedes before God and says, Lord, please, if you don't go with us, then we may as well not go. Because your presence among us, your name identified with us, that is what separates us from all the nations on earth. So Lord, please go with us. May your presence lead us and go with us. Again, the Lord listens to the intercession of Moses. And he says, I will go with you. And I will lead you into the land of the, of the Canaanites. And then Moses asks a, a, a very bold request. He says, Lord, please show me your glory. Show me who you are in, in your fullness. And, and the Lord responds, I can't do that. Not because I'm unable, but because you're unable. If I were to do that, you, you are not capable of handling that. Nobody can see the full manifestation of the perfections of the glory of God and live. But God says, I'll put you in this place, in this cleft of the rock, this little cave. I'll cover you with my hand, metaphorically speaking. And I'll pass over you and you can see my back. In other words, kind of a a diminished, a, a lesser view of God's glory other than the full manifestation of it. And the Lord revealed himself. And as he revealed himself, he not only revealed visually to Moses his glory, but I think in an even more important way, God revealed who he was. Because the passage that we were in last time speaks of God calling out his name. And as he called out his name, he expressed what is perhaps one of the most foundational descriptions of who God is in all the Bible. Because you see it repeated all the way throughout the scriptures. And that description of God is found in Exodus 34 and verses 6 and 7, when he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet not leaving the guilty unpunished. That's who God is. He's compassionate. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He is gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so Moses bowed down to the ground at this revelation of who God was, And he says, if I've found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Even though these people are stiff-necked, obstinate, stubborn, please go with us. And now here is the Lord's response in verse 10. The Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Wait, I thought there already was a covenant. Well, there was, but it was broken, wasn't it? It was broken. And so this is, in essence... God's answer to Moses' request for God to go with them and accompany them. God says, I listen to you, I will go. Not only will I go, but I am remaking, renewing the covenant. 
I'm re-engaging in a relationship with this people, even though they don't deserve it, right? They don't deserve it. They've already broken the covenant once. They have broken it in the most high-handed of ways, but I'm going to enter into a covenant again with these people. I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or there will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make any idols. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, then break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear me before me empty-handed. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. Celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast, and do not let any of the sacrifice from the Passover festival remain until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. Let's bow in prayer together. Our father, we thank you for this, your word that you have revealed to us. You've preserved for us. And we have the privilege of reading and meditating on tonight. May your spirit teach us, Lord, and may we understand these truths and may we see how they apply, how they change our lives. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I want us to see from this passage tonight, first of all, that God's goodness is revealed. That's really the overriding point of this whole message is the goodness of God. We just saw it declared in verses 6 and 7 when the Lord passed in front of Moses in his glory and said, Here is who I am. 
the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness and maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is a description of the goodness of God. So when I say the goodness of God, I'm almost trying to import all of that description that God gave Moses into that term, the goodness of God. And in this passage that we just read from verse 10 on, we see that goodness of God on display because he is willing to renew the covenant with a faithless people. It's an amazing thing in verse 7 when God says that he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Three different words there, I think, to, to convey the point that God is abundantly forgiving And he forgives all kinds of transgressions, which is good because the people of Israel have engaged in some pretty serious transgressions, haven't they? They have violated the covenant. They've committed idolatry, and yet God is willing to forgive them. He's willing to forgive them. He's willing to take them as his own people again. He's willing to wipe the slate clean. He's willing to have patience with them and show them mercy, even though they did not deserve it. So God's goodness is on display in the making of this covenant with a faithless people. And that covenant needed to be renewed, didn't it? That covenant needed to be remade and renewed because Israel had broken it. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and shattered those tablets, it was a symbol of the the breaking of the covenant between Israel and God. They had violated it and broken it with their idolatry, so it needs to be renewed. It needs to be remade. But this is not a radically new covenant. I want us to make sure that we understand that. This is not, we're throwing that old covenant out, and now we're making a totally different covenant. No, this is essentially a remaking, a re-ratification of that original covenant. And we can see that in a couple of ways. One is, because at the end of this passage, there is a second set of the tablets of commandments remade. They're the same words, aren't they? So the same words that were on the original set of stone tablets are on the second set of stone tablets, which means this is essentially the same covenant. It just needs to be renewed, re-entered into again because it was broken. And also we see it in that many of the individual commands that I read beginning in verse 12 and onward many of those commands are very, very similar, sometimes word for word, from what we read in the book of the covenant in chapters 20 to 23. So this is a remade covenant of the same one that they made at Sinai originally. But it needs to be remade because they broke it, because of their faithlessness. This renewal of the covenant, in one sense, can be viewed as like a recreation. And the reason I say that is because there are a couple of words in verse number 10 that are really interesting because in verse 10, there are two words. One is the word make, and the other word in Hebrew is the word create. And the only other place in all of the Bible where those two Hebrew words are found together is in the account of creation in Genesis 1. And so it's almost communicating the idea that that with this renewal of covenant, God is recreating a people. 
He's remaking a people for himself and he's starting anew with them. It is a marvelous work of recreation. In fact, God says, you're going to see all of the wonders that I will do. Wonders never done before in any nation in all the world. And we might think, wow, what does God have in store? They've already seen amazing wonders, haven't they? Uh, They've seen the ten plagues that brought them out of Egypt. They saw the Red Sea part and walk across on dry ground. They saw bread appear before them in the desert when they were hungry. They saw water flow out of a rock when they were thirsty. What other wonders could God possibly do? And yet there were still more to come, wasn't there? Because God was going to sustain them through decades in the wilderness. God was going to bring them into the land of Canaan, into a place where the peoples were much stronger, much more numerous, much more militarily advanced, and where they were at a severe disadvantage. Humanly speaking, there was no way that they would be able to come in and take possession of the land of Canaan. But God was going to do amazing wonders, wasn't he? He was going to reveal his power and his strength, not only to his people, but to all the nations of the world. He says, the people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. So not only will you see it, the Canaanites around you will see it, the nations around you will see it, just like the Egyptians saw my wonders when I brought you out and rescued you. So it is a marvelous, wondrous work of recreation that God is doing and renewing this covenant. And be reminded of this. It is God's goodness and his goodness alone that results in the renewal of this covenant. It is all by God's grace, isn't it? There is absolutely nothing in the Israelite people that would merit their having another chance at this covenant with God. Nothing. As Deuteronomy puts it, the Lord loves you simply because he loves you. Nothing good in you, not how great you are, not how numerous you are, not how wonderful you are, not, certainly not how righteous you are. God loves you because he loves you. He chose Abraham. He chose Jacob. He chose Isaac. He is your God because he loves you. This is all of God, isn't it? That he is willing to re-enter this covenant. It's all his goodness. And it's all for his glory, God is renewing this covenant. He's displaying his goodness for his own glory. We've seen this time and again in Exodus that the reason why God has done things the way he has done them is so that people may see his glory. So that the world may know that he alone is the Lord. He is God. So God's goodness is revealed in his willingness to renew this covenant with a faithless people. And the people are then required to obey, aren't they? Verse 11. Obey what I command you today, and I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then follows that several specific commands that God lays out before them. So God initiates the covenant. He reinitiates this renewed covenant, and now he is calling on them to obey and to follow that covenant once again. But now we know that they're not going to do it perfectly, don't we? We know they're not going to do it perfectly. They failed at the foot of Mount Sinai with the golden calf, 
And that sets up a pattern for the rest of their history in which Israel is constantly going to face this besetting sin of idolatry, which brings into our focus just how amazingly faithful and long-suffering and merciful God is that he would put up with that unfaithfulness for generations. Yes, there were times he punished them. In the end, he did send them into exile. But even then, in sending them into exile, he did not completely abandon them and brought them back home again. God is faithful even when the people are not. So God's goodness is revealed. And I think that leads to several things then in the way that we understand and apply the rest of this passage. Because God's goodness demands a response from us. When, when God's goodness is displayed like this, when he is, his grace is this amazing that he enters into a covenant with a sinful people, that demands a response, a response of honor, a response of praise, a response of gratitude. And so that's where I want to draw our attention in the final points tonight. God's goodness is to be honored by worshiping him exclusively. God's goodness is to be honored by us by worshiping him exclusively. And throughout this passage, I mentioned a few moments ago that verses 12 through 26, many of these individual commands, you can go back to earlier in Exodus and find them, virtually all of them. These in particular, though, are brought into focus here because of the context in which they're just coming out of. Why these specific commands? Now, the book of the covenant that we saw in chapter 20 through 23, it was much longer than these commands here. So don't take this as the full, all of the commands of this remade covenant. No, this is just a sampling of the commands of the remade covenant. It's the same covenant they were in before. Why these laws? Why are these the ones that are repeated here, these emphasized? It's because they just worship the golden calf. They just worship the golden calf. And they did it in a way that looked like the false worship of the other nations. And so as you read through these uh, descriptions, these commands here, many of them have to do with the exclusivity of worshiping God and God alone and maintaining purity and separation from the nations around you so that you will not be ensnared to worship their gods. So it fits in what they had just done. They had just committed idolatry and worshiped a golden calf. And so these commands relate primarily to that sin. That's why these are emphasized here. And so we see in here several verses, several prescriptions that say that God is to be honored by worshiping him exclusively. We see in verse 13, where the Lord says, when you go into the land, that is the land of the Canaanites, be sure to break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. So when they would go into Canaan, there were going to be monuments and altars, sacred objects of worship all the way throughout the land that pointed to the false worship of these various Canaanite peoples that lived there. And now archaeologists 
would hate them for doing this, but God says to destroy it all. Right? We don't want any remnant left of this false worship because God is not interested in archaeology. God is interested in theology, right? He's interested in theology, and theology is God, and God alone is to be worshipped. You shall have no other gods before me. And so don't let there be any, any taint, any remnants of any false worship when you go into the land. He specifically mentions Asherah poles. These were, based on what we've been able to read and, and see in history, these were poles that were in honor to the god Asherah or Ashtoreth. She was a female deity. Some of the ancient texts describe her as a fertility goddess. And you can bring into that what you can imagine what that might entail in terms of the immoral worship of the Canaanites. She was viewed as a fertility goddess. In other texts, she's even described as the mother of the gods. She was viewed as the, the companion of the main god of the Canaanites. And these poles, sometimes they were trees, so they could actually be memorials carved into trees, but later on that developed to just wood poles that were inscribed, had designs, images on them, and they were sacred sites. They were places of worship. And God says, when you get in there, destroy them all. Any false altar, any sacred stone, any pole, that anything that has to do with any false god at all, in any way, get rid of it. Verse 14, he says, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So, how do we honor a good God like this? We honor a good God like this by exclusively worshiping Him alone. And verse 14 reminds us that the Lord our God is a jealous God. Now, what does that mean? When we think of the word jealous, usually in human terms, that has a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? Jealousy in human terms has the connotation of suspicion, of uh, wishing ill will or desiring what other people have, covetous maybe, being suspicious of one another, especially maybe in a, a marriage relationship. But this concept of jealousy with God does not bring into it any of those tainted human ideas of suspicion or of desiring what is not ours. The idea of God's jealousy is the idea of God zealously, passionately protecting what is his. What is his? And what is his are his people that he has redeemed. And so he is zealously protecting of them. Not in the sense of jealousy of suspicion, but in the jealousy of I am going to do whatever is necessary for the well-being and for the good of these people because they're mine. So it is, a, it is a jealousy that is desirous for their good. J.I. Packer puts it this way. God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy so often is. 
but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. When God told Moses that his name is jealous, he meant that he demands from those whom he has loved and redeemed utter and absolute loyalty and will vindicate his claim by stern action against them if they betray his love by unfaithfulness. Essentially, this means that the people are God's and God is theirs. It is an exclusive relationship that is to be guarded and protected and honored. And isn't it interesting that this attribute of God is so closely associated with him that he can say, that is my name. There are few attributes of God in scripture where we read God is something. God is love. God is holy, holy, holy. Here he says, God's name is jealousy. That's how zealous he is for the relationship that he has with his redeemed people. He is zealous for them. And so because he has been so good, so gracious, so merciful to us, he deserves our exclusive worship and loyalty. And now this is in the Old Testament covenant. What about now? What abundant grace and goodness God has lavished on us in Christ. How much even more so God is worthy of our absolute exclusive worship and loyalty. God's goodness is to be honored by worshiping him and him alone. We also see in this passage that God's goodness is to be honored by maintaining purity from pagan influences. So in a few places in this passage, we see things like don't make a treaty with them. So when you get into the land of Canaan, don't make treaties, agreements with the Jebusites or the Perizzites or the Canaanites. Why? Because one reason is those treaties, those obligations that you enter into might cause you to break your supreme obligation and covenant that you have with me, with the Lord. So in other words, no rival obligations, no rival loyalties. You have one covenant. And the NIV translates it treaty here, don't make treaties. The word is the same, a covenant. Basically it's saying, you have a covenant with me, don't make covenant with others. Because it might cause you to break the covenant you have with me. And also I think there's another reason, and that is that sometimes, especially in the ancient world, when you entered into a covenant with someone, there was always a blood ceremony, a, a cutting of the covenant. And oftentimes that involves sacrifices. And if you're entering into a treaty with another nation, most likely those sacrifices are going to be made to other gods. And so even by the very act of the ratification ceremony, you're going to be committing idolatry by offering a sacrifice to another God. Don't, don't pollute yourself with pagan influences. We see a reference here to no intermarriage. Verse 16, don't choose their wives for your sons. Don't give, don't have your sons marry them. No intermarriage. And, and this is not for the sake of, of ethnicity. This is for the sake of pure theology. 
Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. Why? Because you're to worship me and me alone. And what happens when you intermarry with the Canaanites is they're going to become a snare to you and they're going to turn your heart away from me. And we can see that unfold in the life of Solomon. Solomon had, what, 700 wives, 300 concubines. I might have it reversed. It was a thousand. And the Bible explicitly says they turned his heart away from the Lord. That's why he says no intermarriage. Sometimes these marriages would be entered into for political reasons, to establish relationships, to establish peace between peoples. The Lord says, don't do it. I am all you need. I will watch over you. I will protect you. You don't need these human agreements to ensure your protection. I will protect you. And I want to keep your purity and not have you ensnared by the false worship that will necessarily come in into these relationships if you intermarry. And there's a principle there that abides even today, doesn't it? Don't mix faiths in marriage. Don't be unequally yoked, as Paul describes it in Corinthians. But a lot of people today, especially, don't consider that as very high on the list of priorities when they're looking for a spouse. Above every other criteria, attractiveness, chemistry, uh, you know, enjoying the same common interests, whatever. Number one should be, do we worship the same God? And do we serve the same Savior? And even then, even within that, do we have the same way of understanding the scriptures and where we would worship where we would worship as a family and be on the same page as a family in that worship. That's that so important, but a lot of people don't consider it. God says, don't intermarry because I don't want them pulling you away from me. So God's goodness is to be honored by maintaining purity from pagan influences. God's goodness is to be honored by faithfully engaging in worship and remembering his deeds. One of the things that's interesting about this passage is that God not only says, don't do these things, but he also says, remember to do these things. So he doesn't just give them negative things to not do. He gives them positive things to do to help them maintain their relationship with God in the covenant. And one of those things that he gives them is regular patterns of worship and celebration before God. And so we see here described the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover, the festival of ingathering, the festival of weeks or the first fruits, Sabbath days. God says, remember these regular times that have been set aside because those are ways, these, these times of worship that I have prescribed that I have given details about these are ways that you can maintain this relationship that we have that's important for us to remember too isn't it that the christian life is not just about don'ts but it's also about do's here are things that we should do to nurture our relationship and our love for god and regular worship is definitely one of those things I think it's also interesting, too, that when the people made a, a golden calf, a molten image, and they bowed down to it, they also established a festival. They said, let's have a festival. 
And so festivals were all, always associated with worship. And God is saying, no, no, I don't want you ever again to have a festival to a golden calf. Now, that's not a legitimate festival, but here are your legitimate festivals. The first fruits, the Passover, the unleavened bread. Here are the ones that I have given you, so this one should not ever be a part of it ever again. So worship in regular patterns, but worship in the patterns that God has given, not in the ones that we make up. And that's one way to honor the goodness of God. Lastly, from this passage, we see that God's goodness is to be honored by giving him the very best of all that we have to offer. We see some verses in this list of commands that talk about giving God the first fruits, offering to God the firstborn, or in the case of a firstborn son, redeeming that firstborn son through a sacrifice. Why does the firstborn belong to God? Because God rescued the firstborn in Egypt. He rescued the firstborn of the Israelite people in Egypt when he passed over them and and saved them. And so the firstborn belongs to God. But instead of literally giving that firstborn to God, they could redeem that firstborn and keep him in the family, but redeem him by the offering of a sacrifice. But the first belonged to God. The firstborn son, the firstborn animal, the first fruits of the crops. The idea is God deserves our best. He deserves our first, doesn't he? God's goodness. He is worthy of all of these things. I think the main idea of this passage is that God has graciously demonstrated his goodness in entering into a covenant with us. Now, if that was true in in the Old Testament, how much even more so now that we are in a new covenant relationship with Christ? God has demonstrated his goodness by entering into a covenant with us. So let us honor that goodness by worshiping him exclusively, by maintaining purity from worldly influences, by regularly worshiping him in the way that he prescribes and by giving him the very best of our lives. As Paul would put it in Romans chapter 12, let us now offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, our whole selves, because he is worthy, because he is great and he is good. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our God, when we read this story, And we see how amazingly merciful and compassionate you were to Israel and that you would enter into a covenant with them once again. We are reminded of how gracious you are to us as sinners. In that even though we completely are undeserving, there is no merit in us whatsoever. You graciously gave us Christ. And you demonstrated your goodness to us in redeeming us from our sins and in welcoming us into your family by grace. So, Father, let us respond to that goodness. Let us respond in appropriate ways, in faith, in love, in worship, in giving you our lives. Lord, do your work among us as your people. And Lord, may we remember that you are our loving and jealous God who deserves all of us, all of our love, all of our praise. So Lord, by your grace, help us 
to give you the honor and the glory that is yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.